continue. So just two things I wanted to share with you. Okay, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke today. So if you have a Bible, head over to the very first page of Luke, Luke chapter 1. We are in this series that we've called Let Earth Receive Her Long-Awaited King. And see, Jesus' arrival, it inspires various responses. Fear, anger, you can see that in King Herod, but there's also joy. You see that in the shepherds. There's praise and thanksgiving. There's generosity, sacrificial obedience. And for those who receive Jesus as king, it causes them to live in an entirely new way. We've seen that as we've been studying and looking at these different characters that get drawn into the first Christmas stories, like Joseph and the Magi. And this week, we're going to look at another key character, Mary. Next to Jesus, Mary is the most significant person in the story of Christmas. Understandably so. She carries Jesus in her womb for nine months. I want to look at her story here in Luke's gospel, and I want to look at what God intends to do in and through her And I want to look at how Mary responds to God's initiation and ask, how might God be inviting us to trust him in a similar way? So this is what it says in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the story of Christmas, of Advent, of God coming to us and becoming one of us. And we pray that this morning we would have ears to hear this anew, eyes to see Jesus and what it is that you have been doing, Lord, and that we would have a heart to respond in a way not unlike Mary. This posture, Lord, of surrender. And so we pray that your spirit would have freedom to speak and move in our hearts, Lord. Amen. This morning, I've drawn from a few different people, but a couple named uh, Daryl Johnson and another guy named John Tyson. Our big idea this morning is that Christmas points us to God's longing to put the very life of his Son in us. The great gift of Christmas is God himself. And I want to build it to that idea, but first I want to go through just a few points. 
First, Gabriel's words are massive. Don't be afraid, Mary. You found great favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. How? The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the one to be born will be called the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. He is the Son of King David as well. He's this perfect union of the divine and humanity, fully God, fully human, conceived by the Holy Spirit, but born to Mary. This is the wonder of Christmas, that God came to us and became one of us. As one author puts it, God became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And that's what we see happening in the story of Christmas. Way back in the fourth century, this guy named St. Ephraim of the Syriac, he wrote, The word entered into her and became silent within her. Thunder entered her, and his voice was still. The shepherd of all entered her, and he became a lamb in her. See, the wonder of Christmas has caused God's people to reflect and ponder on this meaning, the significance of it. What it means is that God looked at all of the brokenness in our world, all of the sin in our world, the the evil, the death in our world, and his response was not, oh, I'm going to start a new thing. I'm going to establish a new religious institution, a new government or, or political movement, a new philosophy. It wasn't any of that. It wasn't even a new ministry. There wasn't a thing. It was himself. God's response to our failure, to our sin, to our evil is to come to us and become one of us. The very thing that should be repelling him is what draws him towards us. And there are are all kinds of implications for Christmas, what often gets called the incarnation. And if you've been here for a few years, we've talked about these, but I think it's helpful to hear them anew. See, Christmas makes known to all of us that God in Jesus gets us. That he knows our pain, our anxious thoughts, our joys. He understands and he cares. God in Jesus gives us great dignity. He gives great dignity to the human body. No other creature gets the honor that we have. God did not become an animal. He did not become an angel. It pleased the author of life to become human, to be embodied in Jesus. Our bodies are not prisons that we're just waiting to escape. They are gifts. They have great dignity, and they're worthy of respect. God in Jesus has attached himself to us forever. God has tethered our future to him. We have this promise in Jesus that one day all human flesh will be truly set free from sin, death, evil, because God has tied our future to his. And God in Jesus reveals himself to the world. We don't have to depend on the descriptions of what God is like. God shows us what he is like in the form of Jesus. He is the embodiment of what God is like. If you've ever wanted to see the face of God, you look to Jesus. This is why he will tell his disciple Philip in John 14, 9, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, so why are you asking me to show him to you? Christmas tells us, it declares that the author of history has entered into the story in Jesus. For what? To save us, we're told. Gabriel says that Jesus is his name, that 
that you will call him Jesus. Jesus was a really common name in the first century in Hebrew. It's just Yeshua. It's where we get the name Joshua. Yeshua means God saves. More specifically, Yahweh saves. Jesus will be and will do what his name means. He will save. God saves. God to the rescue. And from what? What will he save us from? He's come to save us you and I, and undo the damage done by sin. The damage that comes from living without reference to God. The damage that sin does to you, to others, to your relationship with them, and including your relationship with God. It's living without reference to God that separates us from Him. And He's come to save you and undo this damage done by evil. All of the forces of evil that conspire to undermine God's good creation, He's come to undo that, to rescue and restore. And this is what the Messiah, the one who would sit on the throne of David, as the Gabriel, Gabriel talks about, would do. He would bring God's kingdom on earth, establishing a world of love, hope, joy, and peace. Hence why we celebrate those things around Advent. The angel Gabriel is telling Mary, look, that Messiah, that king is Jesus and you will conceive and give birth to him. Now, if you heard that, if you were Mary, how would you respond? Would you be delighted and overjoyed? Or would you just reject it outright? Terrified of what it would mean for your life? What God wants to do in and through Mary requires a surrender. She's probably a teenager. She's not even fully married yet to Joseph. She's in this waiting period, and now her life is about to be turned upside down, and all of the, whatever the plans she had for her life are changing. Are you going to just say, yeah, let it be done to me according to your word, Lord. Do it. I'm with you. Mary's response is a response of surrender, surrender over control of her life and her plans for her life. And what I find striking is what the angel starts with. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. See, often when we hear God's invitation to us to trust Him and follow Him, we cannot see all that He's going to do. We can't see all that He's doing or all that He's going to do. We only see in part. We get an incomplete picture, not the whole picture. And it's in this place of not seeing everything that fear can grip us. Our need to control things gets exposed. In his book, The Burden is Light, John Tyson highlights three ways we tend to grasp for control with God. One is we try to control the timing of things. There's often this tension when we try to wait and live in God's tension, and so we try to speed it up. In 1 Samuel, we're told that Samuel tells King Saul not to begin battling against their enemies until he arrives and offers a sacrifice to God. But when Samuel delays his arrival, Saul gets restless and he makes a sacrifice to God himself. Saul was actually afraid that, God, that, the, that Samuel wasn't coming and that the soldiers would get restless and get tired of waiting and leave. So he quickly offered an offering to the Lord. And we often get tempted in a similar way to make God provide for us faster, to speed up his timeline because he's far too slow. Another way we try to grasp for control is that we try to control the conditions and terms of our obedience. 
And you see this again in Saul. After defeating their enemies, they weren't supposed to keep any of their spoils of the battle. But instead, Saul's men began to keep the best things. And when Saul was confronted for allowing it to happen, he says he actually listened, that he did do what God told him to do. They only just kept the best. Saul was actually afraid of confronting his men. And we often do something like this. When the way of Jesus feels too hard in practice, we'll be saying something like, I'm going to follow you as long as it doesn't mess with my schedule too much, my finances too much, my routine too much, my sense of what is right and wrong, my sense of comfort too much. I'll only follow you if I can fully understand what it is you're doing. I'll only worship you if you provide a partner for me. If you don't, then the deal's off. We set these terms and conditions for how we will obey and follow him. And the third way we try to control and grasp our control, sorry, is we try to remove threats, real or perceived, from, uh, to our plans. When King Saul saw that young David had the popular support of the people, that they're singing songs about how great he is and how much greater he is than Saul, Saul was threatened. He saw David as a threat. David actually had no intentions of trying to take the throne from him. But Saul saw David as this threat to his position and power. And so he tried to kill David more than once. And you know, we might not go to that same extent. We might make that's pretty dramatic, kind of unnecessary, Saul, come on. But there are other ways that we try to remove people, obstacles from our plans. We might curse them with or without words. When we enter a room, we'll act like that person that we consider a threat doesn't even exist. So we don't acknowledge them, but they're right there. We just focus on all the other people. We're communicating something. We don't respect them. Or we try to maybe perhaps make them look bad in the eyes of others by talking about them in a negative light. We treat them as if they are these obstacles. They're not people anymore. They're just in the way of our plans and our purposes. And those are ways we try to grasp for control. See, King Saul, unfortunately, he's this portrait of a life that struggles to trust God, who lived afraid in fear that he'd lose control, constantly grasping for control, and then when he's confronted, he just tries to defend himself. It's this tragic picture of one who struggles to surrender control over to God, who somehow deceives themselves into thinking that you can really control everything in life. See, fear compels us to grasp for control of our lives. So we try to control ourselves, our world, and often at least trying to control other people. And all of us have experienced what that's like when someone tries to do it to us and when we try to do it to others. And it never goes well. Fear inhibits our ability to respond to others. There's this author, his name is David Banner. He wrote, The fearful person may appear deeply loving, but fear always interferes with the impulse towards love. Energy invested in maintaining safety and comfort always depletes energy available for love of others. And that's what's so beautiful then when we look at the story of Christmas. And when we look at the mother of Jesus, she offers us a different way of relating to God. She hears God's words, don't be afraid, and they are like a balm to her soul. 
They strengthen her. They, she doesn't respond in fear. She doesn't grasp for control, though everything is about to change in her life. How does she respond to this news? What happens when Mary hears what God intends to do in and through her? Well, let's look at it. In verse 34, we see one response. How will this be since I am a virgin? Mary asks the Lord how he intends to do his will. Mary doesn't understand how it's possible. And that makes a lot of sense. How is that possible? It's a question we probably ask as we hear this story. And we read this, how is that possible? Mary's young, she's probably just a teenager living in this deeply conservative society where marriage gets done really different than the way we would do it. And she's in this one-year betrothal period where you're technically legally married, but you cannot consummate until the wedding night. And that's Mary's situation. She's betrothed to Joseph. She's never been married, never had kids. So she's like, how? How? How is this supposed to work? And the angel's saying, hey, Mary, don't be afraid. You're going to have a baby. He will be the Messiah. His rule will never end. Oh, yeah, and give him the name Jesus. How can this be is a very reasonable question. It's more than reasonable. She doesn't say, how will I explain this to my family? What do I tell Joseph? What will my village say about me? She doesn't even focus on the question of why. Why me? Mary says, but how will this be? It's a question rooted in trust and faith, seeking understanding. She's not shutting down what she hears. She's not rejecting it outright. She's asking, how is this possible? See, God doesn't ask us for this blind allegiance. He asks for us to trust him. But trust doesn't mean we cannot ask how, Lord. Trust does not mean we don't express our struggles to understand. It doesn't mean we never ask questions. Trust does not mean we can't express our feelings of shock and confusion. Trusting God doesn't mean we understand everything about him. I wonder if there's a part of your life where you've begrudgingly tried to trust God. Like, you've obeyed, but your heart hasn't been in it. There's this absence of joy. I'm trying to do what I think you've called me to do, God, but I don't even feel like there's joy. I wonder if in that place, it's because we haven't asked him, how do you want me to do this? How do you, how do you want to do this in my life? See, Mary is asking a question like that. How? How do you want to do this? We haven't expressed that surprise or struggle to understand. And so in one sense, there's this underlying uh, way of treating God that's he's more like a tyrant, not your good heavenly father. So because you're treating him like a tyrant, you don't feel like you can ask. And it's hard to come to one that you think is, will not be tolerating any of your questions or needs. But we need to know that we have a heavenly father who is kind and patient. And when we don't understand and it's hard to grasp, He's not threatened by that. So when Mary asks this question, the angel responds in verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Second thing that we see Mary do is she surrenders her plans and life to the Lord. Verse 38 reads, 
Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I belong to you, Lord. I am yours and you are mine. This is the posture of love. This author writes, Surrender is based not on duty, but on trust. It's a free response and attitude that is open to any and all possibilities our Father brings to us. For Mary, this is a moment in her life that captures this posture that she lives with throughout her life. Jesus will upend her life entirely. But because she trusts God and she knows that, uh, that he only means good for her, she can entrust her life to him. Listen to the order then of how this is unfolding. How will this be since I'm a virgin, asked Mary. And the response is, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Nothing's going to be impossible for God. She surrenders to God's power to do the impossible. How will Mary conceive? The Spirit of God will hover over her womb just as he hovered over the waters in the beginning of creation. How will Mary conceive? Not by her own ability, not by her strength, not by her ability to produce life, but by the power of God bringing new life into her womb. Whose life? The very life of God, Jesus, the Son of God. This is remarkable. God intends to partner with humanity, with human beings. God invites Mary to be a part of his redemptive purposes in the world. Mary's surrender to God's will opens the floodgates to a wave of God's amazing grace. What an amazing privilege it is that God gives to her to be part of this story. What God does in Mary in conceiving Jesus is a one-time thing, something that will never happen again. And yet there's something here for you and I that he wants to do. There's this guy, his name's John Stott. He notes that God's people for two millennia have recognized that Mary's experience, which is in one way absolutely unique, in another is typical of the experience of every Christian believer. What God does in Mary is a picture of what God wants to do in us. God longs to put the very life of his son in us like he did with Mary. The very life-giving spirit that conceives Jesus in Mary is available to those of us who put our trust in Jesus. Meaning God's not just content to dwell in a building. He's not content just to dwell in heaven apart from humanity. He has come from heaven down to earth, and he makes you and I, human beings, his dwelling place. It's not enough just to know about him or hear the Christmas story. He wants you to experience what Christmas is about. He wants you to experience the eternal life of Jesus dwelling in you, growing in you. God comes to you, and he promises to actually bring about new life. He comes and says, I have come to you in Jesus, and I want to dwell in you through the Spirit. My Spirit will move in you. He will change you, transform you, cleanse you, fill you with power, give you new desires, desires that you didn't have before. The power of sin, the crippling shame will be broken over you. You will learn to think and operate in a new way. You will begin to love and serve others the way He does. You will forgive the way he forgives and suffer the way he suffers. And there's this part of us that hears us and I'm like, yeah, okay, how though? 
when I'm so prone to grasping for control? How is this possible when I feel so alone and powerless to change my life, my situation? How when I've struggled for years with the same issues? And what Gabriel tells Mary is what we need to hear, that the Spirit will come upon you, that the power of the Most High will overshadow, that nothing will be impossible for God. The Holy Spirit that was there in Genesis 1, creating something out of nothing, out of the emptiness God created and filled. And in the emptiness of Mary's womb, the Holy Spirit created and filled it with a baby. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And this is the Spirit that Jesus speaks about in Acts 1, when he says, you will receive power when the Spirit, Holy Spirit, has come upon you. See, the sign of the impossible that Mary is given when she's asking this question, how do you want to do this, is her relative, Elizabeth. After decades of being unable to conceive, Elizabeth has finally conceived in her old age. Elizabeth, the one who was called barren, has become an incubator carrying new life. In Mary, the one in whom she's never had intimate relations with any man, has now become this host for the greatest act of God uniting himself to humanity. The young and old, this new life is springing up in places that we least expect. And if the Holy Spirit can do that, can bring about this new life out of the barren, don't you think he can work with our lack of trust, our lack of faithfulness, our lack of courage, our lack of strength, Don't you think he can work with the barrenness that we experience in our own lives? Don't you think he can work with our struggles to actually trust him when we keep trying to grasp for control, keep trying to speed up his timing? Man, I feel like this week, (laughs) I'm just living in this tension of like, oh man, Lord, I just want you to hurry up. And see, for me, it might not be that I'm like trying to push things to go. What I find is I almost disengage and get discouraged. Because I'll, I'll be like, oh, Lord, I know you're in control. I believe that part. But it's as if I don't believe that I can have joy as I wait for him to fulfill his promises. It's as if I can't have joy in the waiting, in that tension. That's my struggle. I think I struggle with the grasping for control with my kids. That's where it comes out more. There's this tension, though. Where, where we hear these words, and they're just words, they go past us as if God doesn't want to actually speak into our lives and have us trust him or entrust ourselves to him and his purposes and believe that we actually can have joy, that we can actually experience transformation and change in our lives and in the lives of other people. But if the Spirit is able to do this powerful thing of bringing new life in people that others judged as empty and beyond hope of change, don't you think he can do it in your life? If the Spirit of God can bring human, the human and the divine together creating the baby Jesus, don't you think he can bring new life into yours? Don't you think he can bring new life to you? For nothing will be impossible for God. God wants to overshadow you, to come upon you, to make it so that, you, that Christ is birthed in you and formed in you. You and I can have this hope. And it's possible because God has come to us and become one of us. He doesn't stay far away. He gets us. 
And he willingly enters into our pain, into our suffering, and he's come to redeem us, to set us free from our fear, from our attempts to constantly grasp at control, from our living without reference to him, to set us free from this belief that we can't actually wait with joy. That we just have to begrudgingly trust. That's not the life he came to give us. So what is barren and empty in your life right now? That you or others have judged as empty and just unable to change. Some of us in, our, in this room right now, we are walking through grief. Grief upon grief upon grief. It's almost like this Christmas season is like, no, I don't actually want more gatherings with people because I don't want to actually have to face what I'm feeling. I don't want to have to answer the question, how am I doing? Because I don't know how to answer that. Some of us are just discouraged because of where God has us right now. You feel powerless waiting on God's timing. And so some days feel like it's okay waiting, and in other days you're like, how do I speed it up? How do I remove the obstacles? How do I start setting some conditions on how I will obey God? Some of us are walking through a season where our marriage is in poor shape. And it just feels like argument after argument after argument that doesn't get resolved. For others of us, it's finances. I just feel like this is stretched to this level where you're like, I don't know how to make anything work. God's invitation this Christmas is to not make God fit your timing. To not set the conditions for what it will take for you to obey him. It's not to remove everything that seems to be in the way of your plans. It's to see Mary as a model of following Jesus. And like Mary, respond, how do you want to do this in my life? Because more often than not, we just try to figure it out on our own, and it's not working. There's this invitation for us to ask, how do you want to do this in my life, Lord? And respond, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The invitation for us, then, is to surrender, having to keep control over everything in your life. Because that control is an illusion anyways. We don't actually have that. Surrender, having to know everything he's doing before you obey. Surrender, focusing on what is humanly possible, and take him at his word. Because when you do, you begin to experience the embrace of God. Because when you surrender to God, you're not giving into despair. You're being drawn into the life and power of the one who has the power to make something out of nothing. And he says, the Spirit will come upon you, and nothing will be impossible with God. So, Father in heaven, we come before you, and we acknowledge this tension within us, this desire to trust you, to walk with you, to believe that you are good and trustworthy and your plans are good, that you really can bring new life out of nothing, that you can transform and change us. And yet, God, within me and many others is this feeling of not wanting to wait on your timing, of wanting to have control, of struggling to trust you, struggling to surrender to you. 
But we see an example in Mary, Jesus' mother, who is willing to live a life of surrender. And then we see in Jesus, the one who says, not my will be done, but your will. And Lord, we say that we want to be able to live that way. And we hear you saying, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the Spirit will overshadow you. Nothing will be impossible for God. And so God, with the faith and trust that we do have, we say, that's what we want to grasp onto. That's what we want to hold on to. Not just today, but for our lives. And we ask that you would lead us and help us to see how you have embraced us. And you continue to embrace us in Jesus. And in those places where we feel powerless and afraid, that you have entered into those places and you do not let us go. So we ask for you to change us from the inside out. And that you would be changing our outlook and our hearts, replacing despair with joy, anxiety with your peace, and fear with love. So that more and more you, Jesus, would be formed in us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.